0: The podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter. Sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk Thank you for the invitation to be here. It's lovely to be in this lovely, calm space on a Sunday evening. And to have time together to sit with these few verses. It always feels like a gift when there's just a few verses rather than, you know, 60 verses to expound on in the time we have together. Um, and I, I love that the, I guess the, the context as it was explained to me um, of these, uh, these talks that you're doing at, at the moment in the evening services were around really exploring what it means to live a life of love. So 1 Corinthians 13 tells us all these wonderful things about what love is and we're wheeling out at weddings and yet So much of that um, isn't just meant for married couples, is it? It's actually meant for our shared life together as the body of Christ. So these are the questions we should all be wrestling with. What does it really mean to love one another? And this passage in Galatians, I am delighted to not have to improvise a sermon on Galatians 3. Um, This passage in Galatians 6, um, it may maybe helpful to mention a little bit more about what Galatians has been, uh, what well, the rest of Galatians has been doing. And a lot of what Paul's focused on in Galatians is addressing this question of how much the law of Moses, which this is to say, obviously, the uh, first five books of the Old Testament, how much of the law of Moses need we to be paying attention to as Christians? How, How critical or not is that for us as believers in Jesus? And Paul argues that the law of Moses, while important, is incomplete, and it has brought us to the arrival of the Messiah. And now there is a new law that we are called to live by, which is the law of the Messiah, the law of love. And we might all breathe a sigh of relief that all those long and very complicated laws laid out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy aren't the centre of our spiritual life anymore, that perhaps the burden on us is less complicated and onerous, because who doesn't want to live by the rule of love, by the law of love? That sounds so much more appealing, it sounds more enjoyable, it sounds warmer and more inviting. And yet, we can't help but ask, what Well, what are the rules when it comes to the law of love? Can we have a little bit more to go on? What are the rules that we need to live by? Because it's a little bit vague and a little bit abstract. Now, if my marriage has taught me anything, it is that Andy doesn't particularly enjoy it when I ask him, you know, what what are the rules that he expects me to keep or what are the things he needs me to do? In order that for me to love him, what he wants from me is a kind of spontaneous, um, imaginative, creative, um, you know, responding, responsive, and flexible expression of my love, which isn't something that I've read in a textbook or that someone has told me. This is what I need to do in order to be married. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Because love is not something that we can reach, and we can live by, simply by following a list of rules. And that makes it tricky, and it, and it asks so much more from us. It, it, it's not an invitation to an easy life, it's more than some agreed behaviours or codes. And it's also impossible to spell out in advance everything that love is going to ask of us. Even if the Bible, the writers of the Bible had, had used their full imagination and written out as many kind of situations and um, pieces of advice, they couldn't cover every possible situation that we will find ourselves in. Love asks us to feel, to think, to wrestle with what our response might be in any given situation. And it asks us not to choose the kind of easiest answer, or the quickest answer, or the answer that somebody else might give us. It is a beautiful law to live by, but it's one that asks everything of us. And it's also, as I'm sure has become obvious in this series, not something that we can ever do on our own. It's something that speaks into the very heart of our relationship. And what it is to follow Jesus, which is what it is to share our lives with others, with the family of God. And tonight we're honing in on this particular phrase, which is in verse 2, which says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. So we're thinking about how we express this love through carrying one another's burdens and what that means. Now it was some months ago that I was asked I was invited to come along here and uh, Nick wrote me a lovely email saying these are the topics we're going to cover in the evenings we're going to do and why don't you why don't you pick one that works for you and um, and I couldn't tell you exactly why I chose this one but as I've thought about it in preparation I think there's something about it that connects with with my job now I told you I'm a psychotherapist I'm sure many of you know what that is but um, when I told my parents I was going to train as a psychotherapist, my dad was completely bemused and wrote in the um, family newsletter that went out at Christmas: "Jenny's decided to train as a as a psychotherapist (brackets whatever that is)." <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, for those of you who aren't super familiar with with what a psychotherapist does, um, in essence, I work with people who are struggling with their emotions, with painful experiences that they have. I talk to them, talk with them, I do art with them to help them process and work through and hopefully heal. So there's something about my job, I think, which is about carrying other people's burdens. Now, I don't mean that I spend all week and all weekend walking around carrying with me the, the pain and the struggle of everyone that I've sat and talked with that week. But when I'm sitting in a room with somebody, inviting them to share their struggles, their pain, I am offering to, for that time, to sit and hold it with them and to carry it with them. So many of us are afraid to face or contemplate our wounds and our darkest memories and our deepest griefs. Sometimes we fear that it will just. Debilitate us. it will stop us being able to function, some of us feel that it will overwhelm us or it just can't help us, that what we need to do is put it behind us and ignore it and yet it continues to affect us, I think, in all kinds of ways. I'd suggest that it's only when we face those things that, that healing becomes possible. I'm not going to debate that particular point with you tonight but I will say that it is a brave thing face our deepest pain, but terrifying to do alone. And to me, it feels like sacred work to be with someone, to hold that burden with them for a while, so that they don't have to do it alone. So perhaps that's how I came to this passage and to this topic, and why I was drawn to the idea of of thinking about it together. But then I came to the passage itself, And honestly, it spoke about things I hadn't really imagined that we would have to think about together. In this passage, Paul speaks about some hard things, some really thorny, tricky questions that I wasn't quite prepared to wrestle with. So, the passage begins, verse one, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Paul is saying that to live by this law of love, to live by this rule of love, to grow the fruit of the Spirit, which is what he's just finished talking about in the previous chapter, to live this way means that we have a role in noticing sin and responding in love and action. And while, of course, this isn't the only passage in the Bible that speaks about this idea, I think it's important to acknowledge how, in our culture, these instructions are absolutely radical, challenging, total countercultural, and very uncomfortable. Because when we think about our own culture and society, the ways that we generally respond to people doing things wrong, I think, sit in two very different extremes. On the one hand, we are taught, outside the church, that it is more important than ever, never to judge someone. Never to impose our ideas of right and wrong. Religious people, of course, we are supposed to be the worst at this. The bigots, the moralists, and everyone hates feeling judged, and what right does anyone have to say how you should live your life? You do you, is the popular catchphrase. And in many ways, Our culture has become more liberal over the last, well, say, say 100 years. And progressives argue for more freedoms. And of course, if you ever stand up against a progressive agenda, what does that make you? A regressive? Someone who wants us all to go backwards? If people find out that we are believers, they often expect us to judge them. I don't know if you've had that experience. I certainly have they often expect us to hold views that they find offensive and it's considered insensitive and out of touch inappropriate, judgmental, unkind to respond to what we might consider as something wrong with anything other than respect for that person's free will. So That's one extreme that I think is in our culture. But we also have within our culture this other extreme where alongside that almost unlimited permission and absence of judgment, there's now certain spheres of public conversation where the correct response is to name and shame. And, of course, social media is one of the primary places this happens, as well as more traditional media. Certain behaviours, for example, uh, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, paedophilia would still be on that list. Um, These certain things have to be called out. The culprits have to be publicly shamed. There has to be public outrage against them. Everybody is called to participate in this. Uh, Boycott J.K. Rowling's books, for example. Um, Stop reading somebody else's. Stop watching somebody else. um, Stop following on them on social media. So we have these two extremes in our culture self-righteous shaming of those who transgress certain things, which we might call the hyper-judgmental part of our culture, and then simultaneously the hands-off, it's none of my business, I would never judge or criticise you um, behaviours, which of course aren't even honest because we do all judge one another. But perhaps that comes out of a kind of fear that we mustn't ever own it. And Paul says In this passage, that to live the law of love is to do neither of those things. In fact, this passage really explicitly challenges both extremes. Verse 3 says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. There is a real critique of pride and arrogance in this passage. The kind of pride and arrogance that leads to shaming one another is not the law of love. Pride is criticised in this passage as something which divides us, something which prevents us from entering into the shared life of love. Just as being passive or silent also pulls against the call of love. So how is it that we are supposed to live this law of love? What, What path is open to us? What Paul seems to be advocating here is this That combination that Jesus so perfectly modelled of grace and truth. Grace and truth, both always together. I was listening to somebody preach about this passage uh, recently and they shared a story about being a university chaplain and and how they were often asked by students, should I challenge my friend or my roommate whose behaviour, you know, I don't think is right, And this chaplain was saying that they always responded with the question, do you have a meaningful relationship with them? That means that if you were to bring this challenge, they could hold it in the context of knowing that you love them and that you're committed to them. Because if you don't have that kind of relationship and if you've not expressed that kind of love to someone, then it's unlikely to do anything very helpful or very meaningful. And I think this passage really starts to mean more to us when we stop seeing it as simply instructions for crisis management. Somebody has sinned, what do we do? And instead allow it to speak to how we live with one another, ongoingly. There are other passages where Paul and even Jesus speak about specifically about church discipline. And if we look at those together, we start to get some helpful values and principles for thinking about it. But what we're thinking about tonight is what it means for all of us to love one another not just in moments of crisis. First one asks us when we see sin to gently restore one another. And also we might suppose to trust that we too will be gently restored when we need to be which is to say that Paul seems to be implying that our shared life together should enable us to share our struggles and joys with one another, to encourage and and challenge one another. Now, when somebody challenges me about a choice that I have made or a way that I'm behaving, if I'm honest, I probably never enjoy that conversation. But if I know and I trust that person, if I trust that they love and care about me and that this challenge has come out of love for me, I'm far more likely to hear it than if somebody I barely know raises it. In that instance, it's very easy for me to ignore it and to feel offended by it. Of course, it's obvious, isn't it, that we are called to loving relationships and involvement with one of life, one, in one another's lives that doesn't just surface when we notice some, something that we think is wrong. I know that we know this. I know that we know we are called to relationship with one another which is more than just superficial. But the challenge of course is whether or not we have the context in which to build those kinds of relationships. Because it probably doesn't happen in a gathering of several hundred people. And, and I have no idea what structures and griefs and so on you have at Belmont, so this is no kind of critique. Um, but I hope a reminder and encouragement, even an exhortation to me as much as to you, that living in love does not mean living at a distance. It requires smaller contexts where we can know and be known. Someone, someone who says to us, I think we need to have a coffee, of alarm bells in my head, but if I'm regularly having coffee with somebody anyway, it doesn't feel like such a loaded agenda. It feels like a continuation of our relationship. Now, I was part of a, a group in a, in a previous um, church where I felt like they did it really well, and they were, they were called huddles, and then a group of us would get together and we would share something particular that we felt that God was speaking to us. Uh, or God was challenging about, or God was encouraging, anything that we felt like particularly God was doing in our life. So it wasn't a, here's an account of everything that I've done in the last month, but here is here is something that I feel like is meaningful to me at the moment, a challenging situation, something somewhere where I'm growing or I'm feeling challenged. And then the group would be invited to ask some questions. So not to say, well, I think you should do this, or... Um, this is the passage that comes to mind for for you right now, but to ask them questions in order to draw out for them further, more deeply what God might be doing, what God might be saying, what where this is feeling difficult for them, or where this is feeling challenging. Um, and those those contexts were um, were really fruitful and meaningful because for that smaller number of people, we were prepared to be honest and be open about some of the messiness of our lives and some of the, the difficult challenges and decisions we were making. And I think when Paul talks about carrying one another's burdens, it's actually a beautiful way of talking about our struggles and what it is to share them and to share our weaknesses and the things that cause us pain. The good decisions that feels so hard to make. It's an invitation to live in a way where we don't ignore things that are going wrong or that are hurting us or that are hurting others. But to imagine that maybe together we might be more able to live a life worthy of our calling as God's people in humility or the the willingness to listen to one another. Because pride, pride does not allow us to really open up to one another or to rely on others, or to invite their perspective in our lives. Pride despises that. But living by the law of love means that we no longer see our struggles just as individual failings or an individual's issues without impact on anybody else in the community. When we live a life of love, we can't ignore or disregard one another's choices. It doesn't mean that we're policing them either or that we become like the teacher at the front of the class who calls out and punishes anyone who breaks a rule. But this, is a, this rule of love is a rule of involvement. Of recognising how our choices affect one another. And there's this emphasis in the passage about looking to yourself, not just to to others. So carrying one another's burdens isn't an invitation to stop looking at yourself and just focus our attention on others and where they're going wrong. That isn't a life of love, just of switching focus. And yet it's often easier to talk about other people's struggles. When I was a university student, I led a small group, um, a kind of Bible study and slightly missional group. And um, I would really try to encourage everyone to share deeply and honestly about their struggles and what was difficult for them so we could pray and encourage one another. And one of the, um, the leaders from my church came along one week just, just to kind of sit in and see what it was like and, um, you know, give me some feedback afterwards. And, and he said to me, you know, you, you ask a lot of them in terms of what you ask others to share. And yet, you don't seem to be sharing your own struggles and you know my first response was to say well, uh, well i mean i kind of feel like feel like things are fine things are okay and maybe that was the lens that i had in my life but that that challenge for me really stayed with me because it's really it's really not fair for me to ask other people to to open up and to share and be vulnerable if i'm not prepared to and maybe if i'm not seeing what my struggles are or i'm thinking Things are okay, then maybe I'm not looking deeply enough at myself. Maybe I'm not looking honestly enough at myself. It might not feel like we are deliberately withholding things. It might be a habit, but it's sometimes a lot harder to look to our own vulnerabilities and struggles than those of others. Each one should test their own actions, the passage says. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. So This isn't license to turn our attention on everyone else, apart from ourselves. We have to carry our own load. But we are also to participate in the sharing of those. Because there's a beautiful invitation there that we can be helped as much as we can do the helping. And yet it makes so many of us uncomfortable. And I wonder why it feels so uncomfortable. I think of my my mum, who is always the first person to want to help, help practically, um, with all kinds of things. She will never kind of withhold her generosity from us, from other people in the church, and yet the idea that she would ever ask for help herself is an absolute anathema to her. She would never do that. It's far too difficult and too vulnerable and potentially shaming and potentially uh, terrifying and it goes against everything that she has ever done. It challenges our individualism, our sense of self-sufficiency. It challenges our sense that we should be able to decide our own Lives to decide our own habits, to choose our jobs, where we live, how we spend our free time. It perhaps feels audacious to think that those kind of things might be talked about or shared or wrestled with others in light of what God's call on our lives is. We fear being misunderstood, perhaps, or judged by others. I'm sure we all have an experience of that happening. I certainly do, outside the church as well as inside the church. It's human nature that we fear being judged and misunderstood. And yet, when Paul writes in verse 1 that we need to be careful when we challenge someone, he says, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. I don't think what he's saying is, for example, don't challenge someone for belittling their partner because you too might be tempted to belittle your partner. I think what he's talking about is pride. It is too easy for us to move away from humility and towards pride, especially in the context where we are bringing challenge to somebody else. And that pride, that goes right against the call of love. A shared life, which I think is the heart of what we're being called to here, is an attack on our pride. It's an attack on our self-sufficiency, on our independence. It's an attack on the idea that to need help is weak. Do you know, I don't know how much you follow um, neuroscience and the advances that have been made in terms of scans of how we understand brains, but it's been a real revolution in the last 20 or 30 years, partly because of something called MRIs that you've probably heard of, which enable us to take kind of real life snapshots of what's happening in the brain. How is this possibly relevant to Galatians 6? Well, one of the most exciting discoveries, I think, is that um, we've been able to kind of watch people's brains as they engage in different activities. And one of the things that we've discovered through research and MRIs is that when human beings connect to other human beings, in a way, our brains light up. They come alive. They become much more able to grow and to change and to heal and to learn new things it's it's like i don't know a burst of electricity in the brain when we are connecting meaningfully with other people our culture tells us that the height of our kind of human development is to become as self sufficient as possible to not need anyone to be able to do everything for yourself to be fully independent fully like autonomous deciding your own way in the world and not needing anyone and yet, science shows us that that is absolute nonsense. that to be the most fully developed, the kind of um, most uh, fully realized in terms of our potential, kind of human or humans, can only happen when we are connected with other people. Relationship, it's not, you know, God has already taught us that, hasn't he? But science is now showing the reality that actually, that's when our brains change and grow and heal and develop the most, when we are connecting with other people. Now, often the idea of opening up our struggles and vulnerabilities, the decisions we're wrestling with, and heaven forbid anything about our finances, makes us defensive. And I think the context that we've lived through in the last couple of years with COVID has probably made us more, even more individualised. Because it cut off a lot of relationship, didn't it? It made a lot of the ways that we connect and interact impossible. And actually we had to kind of default to this weirdly individualised life where we couldn't meet and we couldn't see people. Where we had to find a way to survive on our own, especially if we, were, if we weren't kind of living in a household with other people and our life became very lonely and very quiet. And it's been hard to re-emerge from that and to to learn something else to do something else again. And we know that there's lots of people who haven't come back to church, don't we? Like you know, I'm sure it's true in your congregation as much as in any other congregation. There's a feeling that maybe people feel like they don't need it. And they don't need that sense of shared life in God's family. And yet, I think it is right at the heart of our faith that we are called to a shared life, to to belong to other people, to be part of something which is bigger than us, to belong to a story which is bigger than us. That while God sees and knows us individually, he doesn't call us to a solitary adventure, but a shared life. Now, the final verse of this passage I think is particularly beautiful in the message translation, so I, I hope you don't mind if I read it to you in that translation. It says... Be very sure now, you who have been trained to a self-sufficient maturity, that you enter into a generous common life with those who have trained you, sharing all the good things that you have and experience.
1: Now I've just done a bit of a rant against
0: self-sufficiency, and then here it is in the last verse in this translation. Be sure you who have been trained to a self-sufficient maturity. Now what does that mean? Well... When, I think, when I've been thinking about this, I've been thinking a little bit about child development and attachment theory, which, again, might be something some of you know a lot about and some of you not so much. But essentially, if you study this, you come across the idea that the more we are helped and supported when we are young to manage our emotional lives by other people, the more we learn to do that for ourselves. So, for example, when we are babies, when we are toddlers, um our brains aren't capable of calming ourselves down. So if you see a toddler having a tantrum and we yell at them, Calm down, We're asking them to do something which is physiologically impossible for them. They have not developed that capacity in their brain to calm themselves down. They just can't do it. It's something that as an adult has to do, maybe a parent, maybe somebody else in their lives to be with them as they're having their tantrum to use their voice calmly, to stay calm themselves. You know, this is this is a you know dream scenario. I'm not saying we all manage this all the time as parents, but but um, the more that we can calm someone down, calm down the baby who's screaming, give them the milk and the sleep, whatever they need, calm down the toddler. the more that we are able to do this. The more that someone learns growing up to do that for themselves, that we kind of internalise what has been done for us. Children learn that those big, scary emotions, which feel genuinely terrifying as a baby and a toddler, don't last forever. That they can come back to an experience of feeling okay. Now, this for me is a really interesting picture of how we learn... And we grow and and we learn in some ways to become self-sufficient. There are things that we need other people to do for us when we're young that we don't need them to do for us when we're old. And that's true in our spiritual lives, actually, as much as in our emotional and our physical lives. There is something about growth which means that we learn to do things that other people used to have to do for us. But of course, the end point of adulthood is not a life of total self-sufficiency and independence. As those MRIs showed. And spiritually, we, as we grow, we learn to do certain things for ourselves more and more. We, we are not so dependent on others for certain things, but actually that doesn't mean that the end goal is our separation from others. So when Paul writes, and Eugene Peterson translates in the message, that even those who've been trained to a self-sufficient maturity are meant to enter into a generous, common life with those who've trained you. He's saying that no one outgrows this law of love. No one outgrows this calling. No one outgrows this need, this invitation. No one is too immature for it and no one is too mature for it. This is the life of love to which we are called. And so I want to leave you with three questions to just ponder on your own. It might be that only one particularly speaks to you. It might be that, that God has been saying something else to you as I've spoken or, or through this message. But I wonder if, if one of these challenges feels like something for you to take away. So The first question, are we resisting the call to that shared life of love? Do we need to repent of our independence? of holding ourselves at a distance and not allowing others to see and to know us, to be able to encourage us, to carry our burdens with us and challenge us. Are we resisting? Second question, do you need a context to be able to do this better? Do you need to join a, I don't know what's on offer here, prayer trip letter, small group, a Um, Something informal. Do you need to put yourself more intentionally into a relationship with other Christians where those kinds of conversations and that kind of shared life becomes possible? And maybe the final question. Do you need to be gently restored to community? Do you need to say to others, I need some help to come back. Do you need to be brought back into that shared life of love?